Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host today, Jin Yi Li from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Dr. Olga Solovyova with us to talk about her new book, Japan's Russia, Challenging the East-West Paradigm, co-edited with Shokonishi. It was published by Cambria Press earlier this year. Uh, Olga is currently an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, teaching and researching about comparative literature. In this volume, the authors examine the cultural negotiation between Japan and Russia in the late 19th and the 20th centuries, as well as its impact on today's Japan. Through discussions of Russia-related cultural and intellectual expressions and manifestations such as literature, art, theology, and political thought, the authors challenge the dichotomies of the so-called East and West, pre-modernity, and modernity. So welcome to our channel, Dr. Solovieva. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you very much for having me. And Thank welcome, you. everybody. Yes. So first of all, let me just say that this is such a wonderful book, very rich in its range of topics. Um, I understand that your research is more about literature and theology. Is that correct? Uh, can you tell us more about what you do? Yeah, I'm uh, trained actually as a Germanist and Russianist, and my specialty is comparative literature. And I came to this project uh, through Russia, actually, and through my interest in the reception of Russian literature um, uh, outside of Russia. And um, I came across um, the uh, fact that Russia was Russian culture uh, had tremendous, um, tremendously interesting reception. Uh, in Japan, and this project started as um, with my interest, uh, long-term interest in uh, Akira Kurosawa's uh, Russian films, uh, because I'm not only a literature scholar, I'm also a film scholar, and it's actually from the film studies that I came across um, Japan's Russia. Um, and while studying Kurosawa, I was very puzzled by the fact that Kurosawa in the uh, post-war period was interested in adapting the Russian sources, the Russian novels and dramas, Russian literature of the late 19th century with an explicitly populist democratic agenda, and that he was clearly uh, using these Russian sources in his films, which were dealing with most sensitive taboo topics of the Japanese war crimes. This was very, very puzzling to me. Why does he do this uh, specifically through the Russian literature of the 19th century. This was one puzzle uh, of the uh, Japan's Russia project. 
um, another uh, puzzle I came across um, in my interest of Russian reception abroad was when uh, in 2009, uh, Basically, by accident, at the wedding of my friend, of my Russian friend in California, uh, I met her friend, as it happens at the weddings, who was a Japanese woman, uh, Erika Haga, who uh, came from the family of the uh, founders of the Showa Women's University in Japan. And um, Shovel Women's University was uh, established by Hitomi Enkichi and his wife Midori in 1920s. Uh, and it still exists and prospers. And um, Erika's aunt, Noriko Hitomi, was chancellor of this university. And it was very strange when... Eric and I came into conversation. She just told me that she, and I told her that I'm Russian. She said, oh, I just came from the family reunion in Yasnaya Poliana. And I said, how come? And she said, oh, because my family is running this show, Women's University, which was public, uh, which was based on the Tolstoy's teachings. And I was extremely uh, impressed by this, that Tolstoy's teachings resulted in Japan in an educational institution in the university. Because when I was growing up in the Soviet Union, uh, we read, you know, in school mostly his big novels, One Piece and Anna Karenina and uh, early short stories. But Tolstoy's social teachings were never taught and never taken seriously. There was this um, attitude toward Tolstoy's, uh, you know, social teaching that Tolstoy, um, you know, outlived himself, he became senile, it's not serious, it's utopian, uh, and it's not something which, uh, you know, uh, one can possibly seriously engage with. And, you know, I growing up in the Soviet Union, I registered this. Um, and then I knew that there were uh, Tolstoyan communities, communes all over the world and uh, in America, but those were small kind of individual uh, enterprises or uh, initiatives. But I was very impressed that Tolstoy's teaching in Japan became a whole university. And I was so... Uh, interested in this and so puzzled how Tolstoy's philosophy becomes an institution so that I met with Erika's uh, aunt who was chancellor uh, of the university and they have a Boston campus too. I met with her on Boston campus and asked her to tell me the story and I wanted to write an article uh, about it and I even went to Japan, to the Tokyo uh, and visited them uh, campus and so the university um, I met with administration and they told me the story that uh, in 1920 Hitomi and Kichi who was a famous poet and member of Shirakaba society uh, 
uh, was very dedicated to progressive agenda, educational agenda, specifically to the education of women and environmental studies and social uh, policy. And he established this university uh, on the basis of Tolstoy's late writings, uh, which he implemented uh, through this um, uh, Tolstoy's pedagogical theories, Tolstoy's vision of the non-hierarchical society, of the care for nature, and so on. And during the period of militarism, they went underground and they uh, were quiet about the Tolstoyan origins of the university. And they were quiet about it through the period of militarism and then through the period of the um, Cold War. Yeah, because Tolstoy was basically... Uh, first associated with the uh, anarchist democratic thought and was actually even banned in Japan in uh, uh, in the 1930s. And then uh, in a post-war, of course, everything Russian was associated with the Soviet Union. So they came out with their Tolstoy origins only in 1980s and they created even a statue of Tolstoy into which they uh, um, put all the foundational documents, the copies of the foundational documents of the university. So in the middle of the campus in Tokyo, you can see Tolstoy statue. Um, and they have big family reunions every uh, other year uh, where the whole family or members of the family and administration of the university, which is still family-run, um, meets in Yasnaya Poliana. So those were two amazing uh, puzzle pieces, which I had before, and I was studying, trying to study this and um, come up with solutions, and um, how, you know, why Japan has this interest in um, Russia and specifically in this Russian democratic thought and what it exactly means. And I noticed that it was something subversive, something which didn't agree with the official uh, uh, position of Japanese government on many issues, yeah, the issues of culture, pedagogy, uh, in the military spirit, or then uh, in a post-war, um, uh, and I was, you know, how uh, in a post-war, how Japan was handling the uh, uh, recovery, and all this, these two pieces of puzzle came together uh, when I came across um, Shokanish's work on uh, uh, Russian-Japanese intellectual relations in modern Japan. Um, Sho came to campus in 2007 to give a talk, and um, I got his paper on um, Tolstoy's uh, on the reception of Tolstoy in Japan. And after it, I read this paper, I went and read more of his work, including his book on his modernity. And this research, which uh, Sho did, uh, brought this strange explained the strange phenomena to me and brought the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, because in his book, he uncovered the association 
of the Russian culture uh, from the opening of Japan to in the Meiji period uh, with the strong sensibility of cultural, democratic, um, and political dissent. And he not only uncovered an amazing archive of the Russian-Japanese um, revolutionary encounters and intellectual encounters and exchanges, but also provided a brilliant analytical interpretation of this archival material, showing, um, first of all, um, uh, how, uh, you know, uh, early in 1870s, uh, many Russian revolutionaries who were um, banned uh, in Russia to Siberia, yeah, to the uh, polit where, where political prisoners were sent, uh, showed how uh, this contingency, this geopolitical contingency uh, of Siberian prison camps on Sakhalin and nearby uh, in Siberia uh, resulted in the whole flow of the revolutionary escapees from those prisons who were running, uh, managing to escape, uh, and the closest place to escape to was Japan. And um, he also discovered that the major Russian anarchist uh, and pre-Marxist revolutionary Lev Mechnikov uh, came to Japan in the early uh, 1870s um, and uh, established a school of Russian language where he was um, hiring those escapees from the Russian Siberian prisons, giving them temporary jobs. Uh, and some of them stayed there for several months, some of them stayed for several years, and then they were moving uh, to America from Japan and from America back to Western Europe. What Shou did, he discovered, this, he restored the whole global circulation of ideas of the revolutionary thought in which Japan was a very active participant and this circulation of revolutionary democratic thought was happening um, uh, through the mediation of Russian culture, through the non-official opening of Japan to Russia, to the revolutionary Russia. Uh, at the time where the official Japan, where the Japanese government was opening the country to the West, yeah, to the, um, uh, and with the West, to the Western, um, uh, you know, to the, uh, to the Western, um, uh, imperial uh, project, whereas whereas the Russian revolutionary project was um, uh, critical of the empire, yeah, and uh, it was actually guided by the uh, unofficial networks among people. But what is interesting that from these encounters and from the school of the Russian language, where not only Russian language was taught, but also the uh, major representatives of Russian populist democratic thought. Yeah, they were, learning, they were teaching language through texts. And through the Russian texts, Japanese who were learning Russian language were also uh, 
uh, acquiring uh, or kind of um, uh, learning uh, this um, uh, democratic um, uh, ideals, uh, which actually coincided with the um, populist uprisings underground in Japan during the Meiji um, uh, revolution, yeah, or major reforms. Uh, and this uh, influx of the Russian revolutionary thought coincided with the people's um, uh, freedom and rights uh, movement, people's rights and freedom movement, uh, and then very harmoniously merged. And uh, when the people's um, rights and freedom movement was suppressed, uh, it was channeled through the Russian translation culture into the uh, intellectual production. Yeah, in this intellectual production was signaling its subversive, democratic, oppositional um, uh, attitude towards uh, militarization, towards um, westernization often, which was understood kind of by, by the Japanese anarchists uh, in imperial terms. Um, they, um, uh, the culture production of this democratic descent went into pedagogical theories, into environmental, uh, the beginnings of the environmental studies and the peace movement and to, into many intellectual expressions of Japanese culture uh, and uh, in 1920s and 30s. Uh, and um, I think Shaw's book actually develops this um, transnational methodology of dealing with the intercultural encounters, uh, not through the position of the, from the point of view of the state, from the point of view of the uh, narratives um, of the narratives of the winners of history, but um, from the point of view from, uh, of the people from below, yeah, from, uh, from the point of view of resistance. And um, Japan's uh, Russia project, uh, the book which we did together, which brings into dialogue the literature and history, um, grows um, out of this um, historical uh, moment uh, and out of this historical context of um, uh, Japanese uh, culture of Japanese populist descent. And this connects, of course, to the uh, Hitomi and Kichi's foundation of the uh, Showa Women's University, yeah, because it was exactly this moment where um, the Russia represented this um, uh, democratic, democratic thought and democratic pedagogical thought, and uh, he channeled it into the institution, and he was able to channel the institution. Why Japanese were able to ch ch channel these ideas into institutions? Because Japan has a strong uh, culture of um, 
mutual aid of communal organization, which actually Russia has uh, was missing, yeah, and because Japanese uh, peasants, um, as Mechnikov observed when he uh, traveled through Japan, were able of um, uh, tremendous communal organization, which they call Sogo Fujo, uh, where they were helping each other out when the uh, you know the uh, feudal uh, lords failed uh, help out their uh, uh, their peasants. Uh, they had to rely on themselves. So uh, and uh, in a way, uh, Mechnikov uh, was very fascinated by this because he saw that um, uh, the um, Anarchist thought of um, um, uh, self-organization, uh, which was, you know, missing in Russia, uh, could be uh, learned from Japan, and he uh, learned a lot. And he brought this idea of Sogo Fujio uh, to Europe and shared this with Kropotkin. So, but. Um, uh, the Hitomi and Kichi, the return to Hinkomi Kichi, Shou Women's University, it's one of those cultural expressions of that um, uh, democratic uh, underground culture. And it was really confirmed by the story of the family, how they were concealing their Tolstoy affiliation. And um, Kurosawa, I show, uh, it became very clear to me that Kurosawa, um, the Japanese director, stands in this democratic tradition of the um, populist anarchist descent and brings it into the post-war, recovers it uh, as there were many other attempts at recovery of uh, this culture in the post-war. He represents one of them. Uh, so, and the idea of confronting the uh, Japanese war crimes and the problems of reconstruction through the 19th century populist Russian literature, uh, which was associated in Japan in the 19th century with um, uh, the democratic dissent, basically harks back to this heritage, which he um, tries to, among other people, to restore in a post-war is an alternative between uh, American Westernization on the one side and the um, uh, Soviet uh, Union um, on the other. Yeah, this becomes a democratic alternative between two um, different types of um, uh, ideological powers which are confronted in the Cold War. Uh, so our book uh, basically um, deals with many cultural expressions uh, beginning from the uh, First World War and into the 21st century of um, the, this intellectual tradition of the... Um, Democratic, uh, uh, democratic populist dissent uh, in different ways and in, in forms.
and give some counterparts to it too. Yes, that's that's very astonishing. Yeah, there, there's so much that she just mentioned that um, I would very much like to unpack. So you mentioned that uh, in the book as well that Japan's uh, this cultural and intellectual negotiation with Russia is seldom discussed in scholarships on Russia or Japan. And in my in my in my personal knowledge, um, when we talk about uh, after the Meiji restoration, when Japan was learning from the quote unquote Western countries. Um, we often emphasize the role of Germany um, in terms of, say, literature and culture. And while we talk about Russia, maybe um, Russia's impact on Japan, it's usually about the military system, the uh, political system. So um, gathering from what you just said, would you say that the reasons that such discussion on um, Russian influences on Japan's cultural and intellectual production was absent, mostly were the reasons mostly political? Uh, why the uh, it's absent from the scholarship? Well, yes. it's um, absent mostly from the American scholarship. Uh, actually, it is, um, I think, very well explored in Japan because Japan has very strong uh, Russian studies and has tremendous amount of uh, very good specialists on uh, Russia. Uh, it is absent uh, from Russian scholarship for another reason because it is, you know, uh, during the Soviet period, basically, under Stalin, the Japanology was wiped out in the Soviet Union. All Japanologists was executed or um, spent, you know, very significant prison terms because everybody who knew Japanese was accused of being Japanese spy, spies. And uh, the recovery of Japanese studies in Russia started only when um, Kawabata received his uh uh, Nobel Prize uh, in the mid-60s, and basically Russians who had very strong Japanology in the uh, pre-Soviet times uh, had to start from scratch. Uh, in America, it is absent because uh, naturally uh, Americans are interested in the American uh, presence in uh, um, Japan and mostly focused on exploring Japanese American relations as it's usually done in, in most countries yeah uh, people interested how their how their culture relates to another culture and this is what makes this book uh, unique really in the English language context uh, that um, uh, it's uh, introduced the third entity the third point of view, but within uh, the American, uh, within the American scholarship, yeah, or let us say English language scholarship, and reasons for political uh, for different uh, uh, 
also because of the Cold War, of course, yeah, because um, uh, there were clearly a competition between America and the Soviet Union over Japan and who was more influential and they both countries were trying to win Japan over. Uh, and you're right. Um, uh, the Cold War also influenced the fact that people oversaw uh, Russian presence in Japan, but also because, uh, you know, to do this um, in America, you need to know Japanese and Russian. Yeah, two very difficult languages. And uh, it is, in many ways, has been the obstacle to um, uncovery of this relationship. And uh, Shokanisha was uniquely positioned because, of course, he's Japanese and he knows Russian very well. And he was able to do all the initial, initial archival research yeah, and show these connections. And he happened to be educated in America. So he had this all three perspectives coming together, which is a unique situation and a great contingency. But our volume already builds upon his initial uh, field work and his initial uh, uncovery of certain cultural patterns. And people who contributed to our volume are already, you know, young scholars or scholars from the uh, adjacent fields, uh, most of whom uh, know Japanese uh, and not all of whom knew also Russian. Yeah, because uh, actually after reading uh, Shaw's book, you already can easily see the presence of Russia in much of the Japanese cultural production without, without knowing Russian. You don't need Russian for this anymore, yeah? Because he did all the initial uh, discoveries. You can discover one additional document here or there, but the pattern which he showed is there and you can very easily uh, see it and also you can use you know the method and um, and uh, we deal with Japan's Russia not so much as a theme or as um, as the method of reading cultural production across border and from the margins indeed and I definitely think this book, this uh, volume, is a great example of interdisciplinary and transnational studies um, as it covers not just literature or film, it's also art and uh, theology. And uh, before reading your book, I had not seen any book that dealt with these issues. So from reading the book, I get the impression that you and the other authors are really challenging this binary of East, the East versus the West. Um, and uh, it's an important theme throughout this book that, uh, that is the dichotomies of pre-modernity and modernity, um, uncivilized and civilized nature and technology or civilization. I was hoping you could elaborate more on how this book challenges these dichotomies. Uh, well, in the first chapter, we have a brilliant piece by Andrew Wei Leung, um, which challenges the idea of the influence. Yeah, because basically the East-West paradigm uh, usually associated with the idea of influence, and this influence is usually interpreted as um, uh 
uh, channeling of knowledge, channeling of ideas from the West to the East. Yeah, And East is a kind of passive recipient of the West. It's usually binary, it's usually static, it's usually one-way street. Uh, what we are showing, actually, that this whole circularity, yeah, uh, circularity of ideas, how the ideas um, uh, move both ways, uh, how people are coming from, you know, um, uh, Russia and from um, Japan uh, by their own initiative encounter uh, might pursue very uh, similar interests. Yeah, might their their interests um, were interested in what happens when um, uh, you know intellectual from different parts of the world meet and exchange their ideas and pursue certain projects. Yeah, and um, because this is what Shou showed in his book, Mechnikov arrived in Japan. He learned Japanese for two years and Chinese before arriving there. But, you know, it was terra incognita. He basically didn't know what will happen. And what happened, he traveled and he saw, uh, you know, Japanese peasants uh, or farmers, uh, amazing organizational skills which were missing in Russia. And he developed his theory of the, uh, he revised his theory of Western um, uh, civilization of, of the advanced of a civilization uh, on the basis of this um, observation he turned revolution into evolution yeah uh, so we're very we're similarly interested so when two intellectuals meet from different parts of the world what happened how they learn from each other what happens how the ideas are received across border how they circulate yeah and because it's never just two entities, this is much more. So basically this book is written by all of us collectively against the idea of influence. Um, uh, this is our, uh, was our ma major goal. Or for example, we have a piece on Pilsudski, yeah, Brinislav Pilsudski and uh, Uyabe Jinchiro, they're both anthropologists uh, who are both interested in Ainu. And, um, and it is interesting how Pilsudski, who was the Polish citizen of, uh, was the Polish um, um, uh, of Polish ethnicity, but Russian citizen, yeah, how he um, uh, understood Ainu and their position at the margins of the Japanese Empire uh, and at the margins of the Russian Empire. Uh, through his own experience of somebody who uh, grew up at the margins, at the Western margins of the Russian Empire, yeah, ethnicity which was basically deprived of political rights, and how his whole personal experience of this exclusion motivated him to uh, come up with the solution of the uh, uh, I knew uh, position uh, within uh, Russia and Japan. And then he encounters somebody on the Japanese side who is interested in uh, similar questions, but for, for different reasons and what happens in the exchange yeah, and what how they imagine this uh, I know self-determination. Uh, so um, 
another thing I need to mention that Japan, uh, that uh, uh, Japan's Russia is a non-monolithic concept. Yeah, because when we usually talk about East-West, we have a very uh, clear kind of uh, simplistic vision. What is East? What is West? We reduce it to certain kind of ideological matrix, yeah, or philosophical matrix. Uh, and what we show in this volume that both Japan and Russia are actually not a uh, monolithic. We show how diverse is Japanese culture, how, how diverse is um, Russian culture, even ethnically. Yeah? Uh, Japan, we, we talk about Ainu, we talk about uh, Japanese, Muslim, uh, uh, Japanese Muslims, we talk about uh, Japanese orthodoxy. Uh, 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 we talk about, uh, you know, uh, Manchuria uh, and many margins of the Japanese empire throughout its history. And the same as Russians. Yeah, Russia represented also by Muslims, also by the, you know, Polish, uh, by Belarusians. Uh, and we show how people... Uh, within these diverse spaces and from this diverse uh, people meet and they come bring their diversity into dialogue. Yeah, it is not just two entities. It is really these encounters they are very multidimensional politically, ethnically, ideologically and basically they can be reduced to the matrix of East and West. Yeah? Or to ethnic uh, matrix matrix of Japan and Russia, yeah? Well, thank you. That was quite amazing. Um, And I'm really glad that these chapters are pointing out this issue that Japan was not um, as simple, if it's a good way to put it, as a lot of people might imagine. And to kind of connect to what you were saying, I noticed that in the first page of this book that's entitled Japan's Russia, there is a quote from Lu Xun, which I found quite curious. It's actually one of my favorite quotes from Lu Xun. Yeah. Um, Yes. So while this book seemingly deals with Japan, Russia, the, the cultural encounters, as you were mentioning earlier, were not limited to Japanese and Russian culture, what else was there in the cross-border exchanges and how did it happen? Well, we of course uh, deal also with China. Yeah, we show how Ito Ken uh, uh, traveled to Shanghai and collaborated uh, with um, progressive Chinese intellectuals of his time there. We show um, also uh, the uh, Manjurian old old believers who came to Manjuria as escapees from Russia and uh, met there, uh, basically ended up in the Manjukovo state under Japanese governors, uh, uh, governance and um, but came into interesting relations um, with the Japanese ethnographers and with the uh, Japanese photographer Yamazoe Saburo. 
uh, and uh, so on. Yeah, we show how uh, Kamanaka Hitomi, who made a film about Fukushima, traveled to Belarus to share her to share the uh, experience. Uh, nuclear experience and how to deal with this in Belarus. So the quote from uh, Luxun is also it's, uh, I love this quote because uh, I think it fitted very well the agenda or the goal of our book to develop the new uh, methodology. Yeah, methodology which deals with complexity, with um, uh, personal encounters and collaborations and creation of knowledge from the margins, we challenge the uh, grant, you know, official uh, state-sponsored narratives of the Japanese and Russian history. And uh, I think uh, we um, also got a lot of uh, younger people who did very new research, very original research, and tried to challenge these paradigms in their own right and I think it's a beautiful quotation because it's kind of um, invest the book with hope that uh, the new generation of scholars will open, you know, by doing new scholarship, will open the new roads uh, where we will be looking at the uh, collaborations, cross-cultural collaborations, not in terms of the bigger, uh, you know, uh, preconceived ideas of uh, ideological ideas, yeah, of what is East and what is West, and who influences whom and who is more important, but through looking at the very concrete culture production and concrete people and see what happens there, how it intersects or challenges the other narratives, the academic narratives, the political narratives, uh, and draw conclusion from this um, more uh, uh, open-minded kind of pragmatic uh, approach to subject matter. Yeah, when we always ask the question, what happens between these two people within this context and how uh, it relates to what we uh, know? So that's, yes, that's, I I was going to ask you about this, um, uh, to how how would you situate your project in a wider context for um, studies to challenge this uh, cliche of the East versus West or pre-modern versus modernity issue. Um, And I, I definitely think that what you just said to 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 challenge to constantly challenge ourselves to come up with new researches and to collaborate with scholars outside of our field um those are very important tasks for um academics to do in order to uh broaden the horizon of not just our own fields but also the wider field, like um, not in just a regional sense, but also in a disciplinary sense. Yeah. Today, uh, you know, it is the emergent, this book fits the emergent field 
of circulatory histories, yeah, which um, um, look at the history from the uh, uh, you know from the local cultural production rather than from uh, the uh, top-down uh, kind of ideological narratives. Yeah. So and um, one more thing I can add to it that um, looking at such transcultural uh, encounters. Uh, requires another historical dimension if you think that um, uh, Russian democratic thought uh, of late 19th century, which was extremely rich and extremely important all over the world, uh, was totally eradicated after the October Revolution in Russia. Yeah, when the Bolsheviks came to power, what we had was the dictatorship of the proletariat. So any activism from below, any democratic expression of the people was not possible anymore. Yeah, and that's why Tolstoy's social writings, which are anarchists, which are all about the individual uh, activism and individual grassroots organization, this all was completely eradicated in a very, very brutal way. However, through the Russian-Japanese translation culture, it was it escaped and it escaped into Japan. Yeah, as the escapees, as the people were escaping from the Siberian prisons, then the ideas escaped through the translation culture. They were cross-fertilized with Japanese culture, with Japanese descent, and they uh, sedimented themselves in uh, you know whole layer of democratic cultural um, uh, production in Japan. And I see this book now and this kind of task of uncovering of this Russian democratic heritage uh, as uh, another important uh, goal of this volume. Yeah, because now when Russia overcame this heritage of the uh, you know, Soviet uh, dictatorship, and now it moved into another type of dictatorship, yeah, of the basically proto-fascist dictatorship and nationalist dictatorship. So uh, we again don't have the space for this democratic thought, and Russians at the moment are struggling, yeah, to uh, recreate, to restore uh, the democratic heritage. And um, ironically, uh, we have to go abroad to look for this thought, yeah. And Japan is one of those places where we can go and look at this production of Japanese um, democratic descent, which was cross-fertilized with Russian democratic thought, and we kind of we can win it back, yeah. We can distill it out uh, out of this metamorphosis, or we can get it back and enrich form enriched through the Japanese experience. Uh, there's a way, uh, different ways to proceed. But for me, it is um, uh, a treasure. Yeah, it is a kind of a historical treasure where the culture which was oppressed and repressed and suppressed escaped. And um, I think it applies for many other cultures. Yeah, that uh, we can look at this 
intercultural relations as a way of uh, doing the history of Russia. And ironically, the history of Russia now is most plausibly, uh, or the history of Russian democratic thought could be most plausibly done uh, through uncovering this cultural layer of the Japanese culture. I absolutely agree. Um, that is indeed fascinating. Um, I guess to end our conversation today, I was hoping you could read this quote of Lucian to us in a way, as a way to um, inspire young scholars out there or young graduate students and even undergraduate students out there to discover new realms in their studies. Yeah, um, actually, we included uh, several, we included postdocs, we included graduate students who did very regional new work on the basis of new material uncovered in Japanese archives. Uh, uh, I even included my undergraduate student who took a class with me on um, Russian Kurosawa, she co-wrote with me a piece. So we were very dedicated to the idea of including uh, new generation scholars into this project. And this is for whom, actually, to whom this this um, uh, epigraph is addressed. So I will read it. Hope is something that you can't say exists or doesn't exist. It's like roads on the earth. Originally, there weren't any roads across the earth. But when enough people walked them, the roads appeared. This is for Lushun, my old home, 1921. Thank you. That is beautiful. Um, I, I truly appreciate your time today, Olga, for having this conversation with us. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us. That was Dr. Olga Solovyova in her new book, Japan's Russia, Challenging the East-West Paradigm. Stay tuned, and I will see you in our next episode. Goodbye.